Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world, working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now, over to my co-host, Paul Wilson, chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be doing this with you. I'm chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board, and every year more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 30,000 people are members gaining access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than a thousand cities with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult, the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport and places. Together, we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic, and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line. In this third episode of Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange, Jeff Bryson, Chief Innovation Officer at Gell Architects, member of Smart Cities World Advisory Board, catches up with the leader of Glasgow City Council, Susan Aiken. On the road to COP26, happening in Glasgow in early November, leader Aiken is dedicated to transforming her city in a way that can deliver results for local city residents. It's inspiring to hear from such a great leader at such a pivotal time. Councillor Aiken, a real pleasure to meet you and have you here. And you, Jeff. Thank you. Much appreciated. I know you're, to say the least, any council leader is busy, but especially in these days, I know you're very busy, so uh, it's especially um, appreciated. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into more of the sort of um, meat and bones, so to speak, about resilience and COP26 and cities, I also wanted to just learn a little bit about how Susan Aitken turned into Councillor Aitken and what really got you into uh, politics and uh, urban governance. I've been involved in, in politics as an activist really all of my adult life, particularly in, in the Scottish National Party and Scotland's independence movement. I hadn't particularly intended ever to stand for elected office. I saw myself more as a kind of policy wonk and a backroom person, I suppose. Uh, however, when um, it was coming up to the 
local government elections in um, 2012 in Scotland, there was a sense at that point that the party was going to move forward and was going to take a step forward in, in local government and particularly in urban areas like Glasgow, where for a long time the SNP had very little electoral success. Um, and we needed candidates and I, I, I just happened to be at a point where it felt like a good thing to do. Um, I didn't anticipate that I would ever be anything other than a backbench councillor. But my group leader stood down and I put my name forward to succeed him. And then round about the same time, we had our independence referendum in, in Scotland. And following that, although we well, my side didn't win. We we lost the, the referendum. But following that, there was a massive shift in politics in Scotland. And we, Glasgow, did vote for Scotland to become independent. And we got a real sense that something was changing and something was moving forward. So Glasgow had been had not had a change of political administration in the city for 40 years and, and really 80 years. It had been more or less a one-party state. But there was a sense as we came towards the election in 2017 that something was shifting. So myself and my colleagues really started to plan for potentially being in administration and thinking about what we wanted to do, how we would approach it differently, what our kind of distinctive offer would be. I think sometimes for a party that's focused on national questions, the local can get left behind. But we were really, really interested in how we could almost use, how see Glasgow as a, as a crucible for, for what a future Scotland could be as well. So we went to the election and, and lo and behold, we, we found ourselves in administration for the first time ever. And I found myself as leader of Scotland's biggest city and the UK's fourth biggest city. And it's been, it's been a wild ride. It's been absolutely brilliant. Best job I've ever had, but uh, it's quite something. <laughs> Yeah. Has your view of uh, Glasgow changed quite a bit as you've made this transition? You know, I, I know you've you know lived there for most of your life. Is do you see the city in a very different way, uh, or um, if you take your hat off as a councillor, does it look and feel the same? As a councillor, you see much, much more of the, you know, it's, you see the sausage making machine, I suppose. Um, so you you see the nuts and bolts of how the city gets to be the way it is and how much goes on behind the scenes um, and the huge amount of operational effort that's involved in that. In some ways, that makes you, I, I suppose, more sympathetic when there are problems and when there are flaws because you're like, mm. you know how difficult and how challenging it is. But in other ways, it gives you the inspiration of going, there must be a better way to do this. There must be a better way to respond to some of the issues that the city faces. As a leader, it gives you a different perspective again because you have to combine that with the, the strategic oversight and really big picture stuff as well. And that's, I suppose, where we are in the city now and really putting ourselves at the forefront, I suppose putting ourselves forward as a, a demonstrator city for where the challenges of sustainability are found in urban settings. That's come from my experience as, as being leader rather than a, a local councillor, if you like. It's having that city-wide perspective um, as well as, as the local in, in my own area that I represent. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that idea of Glasgow being this exemplar, right? Because, you know, hopefully for years to come, we're going to be saying, you know, speaking of the Glasgow Accord in the same way that we speak about Paris and Kyoto. Mm. But besides the name Glasgow, what else can visitors expect and, and see in the city that sort of represents the way forward that other cities and other places need to adopt 
to fight climate change and take climate action going forward. Are there specific things that people will be able to see in Glasgow, touch and feel and taste? Yeah, so I think the thing about Glasgow is we are very much a city in transition, um, and two kinds of transition. We're in a, we're in transitioning from our high carbon past, and Glasgow was a, a heavy industrial city for a long time, and then a post-industrial city. We're transitioning out of that post-industrial phase, um, and I suppose using the the challenges that um, and the legacies of that, which are which are very significant, to drive our low carbon transition as well, our, our decarbonisation as a city. So one of our legacies is we have more vacant and derelict land in Glasgow than anywhere else in the UK and probably per head of population. There won't be many places in um, in Europe, certainly in industrialised Europe, to compare with that post-industrial legacy in Glasgow. And it's it's been a long-standing, it's a social justice challenge because the, the poorer an area is, the more vacant and derelict land there is. It's an urban blight, essentially. Uh, but it also gives us enormous opportunities. It gives us enormous opportunities for greening, for, for wilding the city. Um, it gives us enormous opportunities for uh, renewable energy space. It gives us opportunities for when we do reclaim that land and redevelop it to make sure that those developments are low carbon developments. Um, so some of our house building, we're doing a lot of house building in the city in the current period, lots of affordable homes, social rented homes. Um, and we're really focusing on having that as passive house standard, for example. So the north of the city, there's a whole section in the north of the city that really has been neglected and, and almost abandoned for a long time. And there's a huge investment going in there just now. So people will see housing developments both in the pipeline, but also already there, which are, are of a really incredibly high standard when it comes to energy efficiency and, you know, a big focus on tackling fuel poverty, which is one of our biggest social justice issues in the city. They'll see our city centre in transition. Um, our city centre is very much built on the, the 19th century grid model, very much be do car dominated for um, a long time, certainly since around the 1960s even though we have the lowest car ownership of any city in the UK um, per household. Um, but they will see where we are removing private cars from space in the city centre and giving, that might be the most obvious and visible thing, actually giving that space yeah. over to, to cycling, to walking, to wheeling, to people, essentially. In fact, the programme is called Spaces for People. Um, mm. And as we, for COP26, we have a plan in place just now to move towards the model that cities like Barcelona have adopted, for example, where we, again, we limit traffic further within our, our city centre. Out in our neighbourhoods, there's there's similar work going on around reducing the impact of private traffic and creating more more space for people. Uh, and there's you know a lot of projects that are in development and we'll be able to point to where they're going to be, but they're they're not quite there yet. Um, but the the big things for us, I suppose, are are transport, mobility, and homes and buildings are, are, are where the most obvious things are that people people will be able to see and get that sense of. And I think the important thing to understand about Glasgow is that we we don't think we're there yet. We know they're not, we're not there yet. We've got a lot of work still to do, but the transition, I think, is visible and tangible to, to everyone in the city just now. Well, I love the idea, as, it, as you say, sort of turning derelict land, seeing uh, some of those challenges as also opportunities, 
uh, I think that's going to be inspiring for a lot of people to see how you framed it in that way and, mm. and to also, you know, feel some of these this transition because I don't think any city is there yet, no. but uh, we're hopefully moving in the right direction. And one, one I know recently you came out uh, just a couple weeks ago with a very ambitious plan, 30 billion pounds of, of really setting the bar of where you want Glasgow to be in 2030 when you're also planning on being carbon neutral, correct? Mm. Can you tell a little bit about those bold plans and where you see the city heading? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, it's a, a set of infrastructure, primarily infrastructure interventions, which focus on the areas where we know our biggest emissions are um, and and what we've strive to do. And, and this is a, it's a challenge for all cities. And I think particularly in the UK, where cities by and large have not been directly involved in this scale of um, intervention. And, and certainly the scale of investment. So we've done a lot of work in capacity building in the organisation, but also worked with partners to try and get ourselves into a position where we have, I suppose, investable propositions that we can go out and say, this is what we need to do. Please come and work with us uh, and bring finance mm. as well uh, mm. to deliver this. And we, and, and we do it as a collaboration. There's no way that we can deliver it on our own. We need to work in collaboration both with national governments, of which we have two in Scotland, of course, and uh, and with the private sector um, and with the finance community. So we're looking at housing on, and I suppose on two fronts, one retrofitting existing homes to make them energy efficient, um, the, about 450,000 homes across our metropolitan region, uh, focusing on insulation and air tightness, again, tackling fuel poverty as part of that, and also shifting to renewable source energy and heat and we think that our river in the city the, the river Clyde on which Glasgow really was was built our our, um, our growth as a city was was originally founded it can probably power around 50 percent of the city elsewhere we would look at you know whether it's air source or ground source um we're we're looking at uh, various renewable source options but the river is where our initial focus is and creating district heat networks out out from our river and also the waste to energy plant that we have in in the city, which right now is putting energy into the grid, but not we would like it to go directly into people's homes. So big focus on domestic energy consumption and domestic heat. Big focus on transport um, and connectivity. We have plans for what we, we're calling the Glasgow Metro. Um, so an entirely new transport mode, linking up our existing public transport, but also connecting bits that aren't connected just now. Um, and we have some of our outerlying parts of the, of the city and the city region are, are very disconnected. And that's been an economic and a social barrier as well as a, um, a sustainability barrier. So big focus on transport and also Glasgow had, um, at the end of the 1960s, uh, Scotland's busiest motorway driven right through its heart. And we, again, live with the legacy of that to this day. We have some of the worst air quality um, in the UK outside of London. So we want to put a, a cap over that motorway, the M8, contain emissions and create new public realm while we do that as well. Those are some of the the kind of big headline ones, I suppose. We're also looking at um, at decarbonising industry, decarbonising work in the city and, and finding ways to do that. Um, so lots of different things, but it's 
it's been a piece of work to help us get our head around. We know where we want to be. It's almost we, we've started at 2030 and worked backwards. We know where we want to be in 2030. How do we get there? What are the steps that we need to take? What are the investments that we need to make? What are the interventions that are going to be required to get us to that point? So this green print that we are calling it brings together that around 10 interventions that we think will make the biggest impact in terms of emissions reductions over the next decade. I mean, it's so important to have that big, bold political vision actually to pave the way. And I think I also want to talk a little bit about partnerships because you mentioned you know, working with national government, private sector, what what role does does the citizen play in this also? You know, I think that as important as these big scale projects are, we also know that sometimes it's dependent on individual human behavior, right? So if you make a, a fantastic uh, recycling uh, infrastructure, it's dependent on if people actually change their behavior and recycle. We also know that some small scale changes people changing their diet uh, to more plant-based or people choosing to bike and walk, like you mentioned, instead of drive can make a big difference. So where do you think the balance is between, you know, bold top-down investments and then sort of encouraging these everyday shifts in behavior of the everyday citizen? So I suppose our job as a public authority is to create the the framework, uh, not not just policies, but just the kind of the urban systems on which a city like Glasgow depends that then enable people to make more sustainable choices. I think in a city like Glasgow, where we have um, a lot of poverty, a lot of people living under great stress and the, the duress that deprivation causes, I don't like a conversation about sustainability and carbon reduction that is focused too much on individual behaviour and individual choices. Um, I I think it's often framed as people giving things up. And I don't Mm. think asking people in poverty to give things up is fair, um, frankly. So we need to frame it in another way. We need to say, yes, we need everyone in the city to make uh, better choices. But what we will do is enable you, create systems that allow you to make those choices so that the choice to recycle rather than put something into general waste that could then end up in landfill is the obvious choice for you to make. It's not a difficult choice for you to make that we've intervened in your home in such a way that you don't have to use as much fuel to heat it because your home is considerably more energy efficient than it was before. We've created transport systems that mean that you don't have to use your car. In actual fact, you have cheaper and more accessible um, options that are preferable. And I think it's about also understanding if we're going to be making these huge interventions over the next decade and, and particularly spending this amount of money, £30 billion pounds is, is you know more than would have been spent in the city, probably in the entire post-war era on, on these kinds of infrastructure interventions. We need to ensure that every single pound spent delivers multiple benefits. So it's not just decarbonisation, it's also tackling health inequalities, economic inequalities, um, social challenges. So, you know, again, we come back to uh, the vacant and derelict land, for example, and um, just kind of Glasgow's urban shape and feel. We, we're we a city of an enormous amount of parkland with Glasgow in Scots Gaelic. Uh, the, the name means green place and mm. it's been known as the dear green place um, colloquially for a long time because we have a huge number of parks. But in actual fact, again, you go to more deprived areas, the quality of that green space 
tends not to be as good. So, you know, I, I talked about um, transport and housing, but the other big area is that we want to invest in is biodiversity and greening and looking at the direct links between deprivation and access to nature and quality green space and making then the investment choices that address those issues. So you're then able to say to people, this is not us just imposing something on you for the sake of it. Um, we're actually looking at where the, the, the historic and long-standing challenges of the city lie and take the, the opportunity of this emergency that we have no choice but to respond to um, and using it to address some of those challenges. And, uh, you know, we also have, although they're not as extreme as some other uh, cities as, as what, you know, what we've seen in um in the, in the eastern coast of the United States and Canada recently, for example, where the, those extreme heat waves and the impact of that, we have seen, for by our standards, extreme weather conditions recently um, and flooding in particular. Um, there's been a significant impact there. So again, we can genuinely say to people, climate change is, is um, impacting you now. It is affecting your life and and it will affect your quality of life and increasingly for many people in a lot of jobs it will affect your ability to make a living so we need you to work with us now and we need to you, you to come with us on this journey i think though um what we're getting is a growing sense of um of our citizens wanting to be part of this and and cop26 gives us the huge um opportunity to you know the discussions are going to be happening right here on our doorstep people are not going to be able to miss them and we're doing huge amounts of work in our schools for example that is just just brilliant like our our, our young people children and young people have been rewriting un charters and things like that they've been doing amazing things um and they will they will keep us honest on this they will make sure that that we, we stick with the ambition and that we, we keep driving it forward. It seems like, you know, if we want to achieve a fair and just transition, which you speak to there, it seems like it might take a different relationship with citizens in the way yeah. that, that you're describing. And also maybe some different forms of leadership and governance or or do you think, I mean, are there some particular ways in which your, you know, job as counselor and lead counselor, do you think that that looks different as you go to these next, you know, nine years towards 2030 than it has looked up in the seven years up to now? Is there a change of leadership necessary and what does that look like? I think a change of leadership style was necessary anyway in Glasgow and it was something that we aspired to do and, and had set in motion much more deliberative and participative democracy. But this, all of this has accelerated that work. Um, so we, we had been piloting for quite a while kind of citizens panels um, in our local neighbourhoods, for example, where people were focusing on the particular issues there. So in the area of the city that has the highest levels of child poverty, for example, um, the citizens panel there particularly focused on what, what interventions do we want made here in this neighbourhood to address child poverty. In another area, we it was children and young people, the, the area that has the highest number of, of people under 16, and it was children and young people who led there and said, right, these are the things that we want to happen here locally. So we've scaled that up. We had a, 
a citizens' assembly, a, a bigger scaled one about the climate, looking at our climate emergency action plan as a city, and I suppose getting then, which was consulted on, but perhaps a more traditional type of consultation. But uh, this allowed citizens to look at that and go, right, okay, how is this relevant to me? How does that impact on me? So they've given us some additional recommendations about how we take forward that implementation. Um, their final report isn't published yet, but the things that are coming out of that are they're really confirmatory, I think, of the areas that we thought were probably the right ones to focus on. But people are coming back and saying this is about jobs. This is about opportunities for people. Um, this is about building resilience and sustainability into our economy, as well as resilience and sustainability into the city in response to response to climate. So we've, we've not had to really labour the point about the just transition. People are getting that because we still live with the effects of a, a very unjust transition in Glasgow from 40 years ago. You know, a lot of people still live with it, the impact of that generational unemployment, physical and social and economic legacies. So I think the the change in leadership style is 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 to keep understanding that you don't have to tell people what's good for them. Ask them how they need and want us to respond as democratically elected leaders, what, what they need us to do to make the difference in their lives and in their places. They know. They, they know what, what's required. Um, they know mm. what, what's needed in their local places. So it's, it is much more of a, a, a responsive leadership rather than a, an impositional leadership, perhaps. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of responsive leadership. And I and I wonder, do you think that, you know, are there technological tools that help leaders become more responsive? Or do you think technology, we haven't talked much about technology, but I wonder, does that does that play a role in the type of outreach that you're talking about? Or actually, is a lot of this just good old-fashioned leadership that asks rather than demands and it responds rather than than dictates? It's a combination of the two. And I mean, I think the, the type of technology we're using now, for example, we used for our citizens' assembly, it was all done online because we were not in a position to be able to meet in person. And it, it worked extremely well. Not everyone has access to that kind of technology yet. More and more people do. Um, so the yeah, the good old fashioned stuff of just of talking directly to people, of of knocking on their doors and um, and having those conversations with them, uh, that'll never go away. I think that'll that'll always be essential. Clearly, technology assists us. One of the um, areas we're working on just now as well is is open government and becoming. We've joined the um, open government partnership. We're looking to um, other cities like Riga and in in the Baltic states, for example, where they've done um, incredible work in Estonia, for example, incredible work around citizens' access to to democracy and, and to influencing public services through uh, technology and through digital routes. So we're, we're really looking to imitate and, and, and take on a lot, a lot of the lessons from, from that kind of work in Glasgow as well. But we do still have a digital divide related to poverty. And, and so it can't all be about technology um, until, no. until we've managed to, to close that digital divide, which is a big priority for us. I trust that actually, you know, a lot of the programs you've been talking about uh, in Glasgow will be those leading lights and inspiration for other cities, and, and that's going to be coming through in COP26. Just one last, uh, again, a little bit more personal question. I think inspiration, 
looking to other places is so important. You mentioned Riga. Are there other cities, other particular politicians, entrepreneurs, books, podcasts? What, what are some things that are inspiring you right now in your efforts that you might want to uh, share with us? Well, one of the things that um, we, I, I suppose, has been helpful, uh, not just for me, but some of my officials as well, in just trying to get our head around all of this has been Kate Reworth's work on, on the donut economy. Um, and we've certainly, it is that understanding of systems and how we approach this in a systemic way rather than um, what has tended to happen in the past is that we've we've looked at a set of different problems. Um, so we've got fuel poverty here and then we've got poor transport connectivity that um, prevents people accessing job opportunities here and then we've got something else here and something else here helping us get our head around how we create get towards a city, an economy, a society that operates within planetary boundaries, how we bring all of that together and we create we create systems within the city. That donut um, economy approach has been really helpful um, in helping us to conceptualise that, I think. Yeah, uh, lots of other things that, that other cities have been enormous inspiration. It's been one of the great privileges of us being caught post is dozens and dozens and dozens of virtual engagements I've had with cities in every single continent over the, the past year to 18 months has definitely moved our thinking and it's it's helped us to be bolder I think it's helped us to be more ambitious and to go a little bit faster and look and see you know if if that city can do that then we can do it the old kind of objections and vested interests all start to fall away when you see how other people have done it and you know I think that um, Mayor Anne Hidalgo in in Paris for example she can transform the Champs-Élysées you know that however many lanes of roaring traffic that was before, if she can turn that into a city park, then we can do it with Glasgow's compact city centre, which, you, you know, you can you can easily walk around in, um, in a few hours. So I think the ability for us to tap into those networks and be part of the C40 cities network, for example, which, you know, we're very much among the smaller cities in that where we not COP26 host, we wouldn't have access. They've been enormously supportive and helpful in the work that we've been doing in the run-up to, to COP26. So that's been absolutely brilliant. But ultimately, I have to say, and I know this sounds really cheesy, but my inspiration mainly comes from when I when I go out in my ward and I talk to my constituents and I, ha- I have a surgery. So the people in Glasgow are very straight talking. They don't mm-hmm. um, mince their words. Uh, they don't hold back. They're extremely funny. And that's always, it's just seeing hearing from people about their challenges, seeing their stoicism and their resilience in the face of those challenges and thinking, right, we just constantly need to step up our efforts to support them and to make those challenges less and to make make their life circumstances better. Yeah. Well, I think it's a hat, a hat off to you as well in the type of leader that you are to be, you know, listening to the citizens for better or worse and taking on that criticism as well as the praise. So, um, Really, I think that should be a big inspiration for other uh, other city leaders as well to take time to get those firsthand experiences. Yeah, we obviously want a, a Glasgow Accord or a, a you know whatever the go- is going to be called that's um, uh, that's worthy of the name of our city. We we, we would like it uh, you know the outcome to be a good one. And um, I think that that cities are it, this is going to be a cop of cities definitely of urban places, seeing we are leading the way. 
we actually are are the delivery agents for net zero and for 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 decarbonisation. And um, we need the national governments to get behind us. We we need national governments to give us the confidence and the reassurance to make these investments and to to stand behind us financially as well as with policy frameworks. We need to be able to give our citizens reassurance that the day to day stuff that we do as cities, whether that's educating children or providing care for older people or um, emptying the bins, all that kind of stuff, that that we're going to be able to carry on doing that, that we're not going to be spending all our money on big projects and and leave the day-to-day stuff behind. Um, So again, I think there's a job of, of national governments there. But mainly, I think Obviously, there's going to be a lot of investors, CEOs, people like that in in, in Glasgow for COP26 as well. Talk to us and talk to other cities because this is a new space for us. We're all getting our head around the scale and pace of change that's required. We know that you are too, in fact. Um, So let's work together on this. The opportunity that we have here, this, this is about... You know, we shouldn't think of this as a cost, as paying for transition. It's cash flowing transition uh, because the benefits that we will gain from this if we do it properly are multiple and, you know, multifold as well. Um, So let's focus on, on delivery and on action, go beyond pledges and understand that cities are those agents for delivery. So empower us to do it, finances and resources to do it and work with us. And that's how we'll deliver what the planet needs in the time that it needs us to do it. That sounds wonderful. And I think I'm I'm heartened also, you know, I have two younger children, Generation Z, Generation Alpha, these future citizens of cities and also future consumers of, you know, private sector products. It seems that they're also really setting the demands uh, quite high. So doing good can be good business and in partnership with cities, that's where the the real potential lies, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Great. So, Susan, I just want to say thanks for taking the time here on the Urban Exchange podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you. And thanks to Urban Exchange. It's been a pleasure. Glasgow is obviously a city with bold plans. Yet, like many cities around the world, it faces significant challenges transitioning from its post-industrial roots and using the legacy of that past to drive the city's low-carbon future. Leader Aiken is committed to working together with the city's two national governments, as well as alongside city residents, to make huge interventions and massive investments that can effectively respond to the climate emergency and related shocks and stresses within the transport, health, and energy sectors. In the next episode, we will be coming to you live from COP26. We're looking forward to talking with mayors and city leaders that are attending the conference in Glasgow, eager to advance a resilient future in cities around the world.